Hello, I'm Giles Brandreth and this is Rosebud. My guest today is the journalist, television presenter, campaigner, Dame Esther Ranson. Dame Esther has been a unique, pioneering figure in British broadcasting for more than 50 years. That's Life was on the BBC for over 20 years, from 1973, and she's been entertaining, informing and challenging us ever since in all kinds of ways. It was through That's Life that Esther developed her extraordinary skill as a champion of good causes. She orchestrated one of the first truly viral campaigns when she set up Childline, a helpline for children in danger or distress back in, I think, 1986. Just one of the many campaigns to come out of that show. And she now runs Silverline for older people suffering from loneliness. Esther is indefatigable. Even though she's now suffering from cancer, she's still a fighter. She's currently working to introduce assisted dying for people with terminal illnesses. You may have read about that in the papers. You may also have been to see the film One Life, which is its inspiration is the edition of That's Life, or in fact two editions, as we discover of That's Life, that featured the extraordinary story of Nicholas Winton, who saved so many children from the Holocaust back at the time of the Second World War. Anyway, I'm really grateful to Esther for finding the time to record our conversation for Rosebud. I think, uh, actually, you'll find she surprises herself by some of the things she remembers. Because of her health, we actually made this conversation, we recorded it in two parts, as you'll hear. I hope you enjoy this unusual conversation with the most unusual person, a living legend, actually, my friend Esther Ranson. Can I begin, Esther, by asking how you are before we get round to our real conversation? How how are you? It's impossible to know. So I don't know. Every now and then I say to my consultant, when am I going to die? And he tells me sometime in the next 10 years, which Mm. I knew anyway, probably. Although my parents were very long-lived indeed in their 90s when they went. So I'm a bit of a failure. How old are you now, if I may ask? Good heavens, John. I won't ask. I'll research it and I'll just tell the I'll tell the listeners. Since you mentioned your parents' age, and apparently it's all right to, to tell people how old they were, I felt it was all you you must be my sort of age. You're in your mid-70s. You're adorable. I think you should have crept up a little bit on the question. I think you should have said, <laughs> I feel as if we've known each other forever, but can you tell me? <laughs> A bit more mellifluous. With your aristocratic <laughs> connections, I would have thought you'd learned that. Yeah, I should have learned that. Well, I do know we have known each other for more than 50 years, because mm. which is a long time. And I'm very, very <laughs> grateful to you for having this conversation with us now, because oh. obviously uh, things have been tough for you and continue to be tough. And obviously each day is slightly different from every other day, and you never quite know when you get up how you're going to feel. Is that the essence of it? It is. I'm 83. Good grief. Oh, well, that's impressive. Um, You're you're looking good for 83. Uh, Now, look, let's begin at the beginning. This conversation always begins in the same way. And I want to ask you, what, Esther, is your very first memory? I've got one of those memories that goes back a long, long way. But don't ask me about last week, Mm. okay? So my first memory, I must have been about 18 months and I'm standing in my cot and I can hear air raid sirens because I was born in 1940, you see, during the war. Mm. And I can still hear the two kinds of air raid siren in my head, the, the one for when enemy planes were first spotted and then the all clear i've got lots of memories of the war actually and where was this where where did your parents live and and who were they where were you in 1940 when you were born where were you living with your family okay 
I was a cesarean birth, which was quite tricky. You know, not many people had done it. The Queen Mum had done it twice. But, I mean, she wasn't born that way, but Queen Elizabeth and Princess Margaret were born that way. So it was tried and tested, but it was still a bit precarious. But it was, obviously it was fine for me and my sister and fine for my mum too, bless her. She was Catherine Flora Levison. That was her name. You may or may not know there was a famous novelist called Ada Levison who was a friend and supporter of Oscar Wilde. Very she much was like so. Great, great aunt, something like that. Yeah, she was very uh, famous. She was one of the few people to stand by Oscar Wilde. Mm. Absolutely. And my mum, Catherine Levison, married Harry Ransom, and uh, he was the cleverest man I knew, present company accepted. And uh, we were in Berkhamsted because my family decided when war was declared that London, where we were living, would become a target. And therefore, we all moved out. But my father, who was a senior electrical engineer in the BBC, involved in being in charge of the abdication broadcast. So there, but that was before my time. Anyway, he worked in London because he was in a reserved occupation. So he worked for the BBC in London and he used to commute. But we um, lived in Berkhamsted. So what were the characters of these people? What was your dad like as a person? What? How do you remember him? Very, very, very clever. Very kind, um, benign, except when he lost his temper, um, which was infrequent, but quite memorable when it happened. He used to tell me titchy stories. I used to have to say, it was the bedtime ritual, tell me a titchy story, and he would make up a, a story to send me to sleep. Um, fantastic man. Uh, died age 90. My mum, Catherine, was very pretty. I have photographs that prove it. It's not just my imagination. She was one of four daughters, so it was a real matriarchy, and I feel very grateful to it because I had three formidable aunts, one of whom was also in Berkhamsted with her family, and one of them had joined the Quaker Relief and was driving ambulances for them, even though we're Jewish. When did you first become conscious of being Jewish? Oh, always. I've always known. Always part of my culture, my heritage. I went to religion school. I was, I'm a liberal Jew, so we were confirmed in those days, although now I would be bat mitzvahed. Mm -hmm. My children have all been bar mitzvahed, bat mitzvahed. And it was something that my family was very aware of and cared about. And how did your parents get on together? Were they, were they good friends to each other? Did you feel you had loving parents who were loving each other as well as loving you, the children? Absolutely. They bickered. They were very different. But that sometimes really works. But it did lead to a certain amount of disagreement. But there was no question. Huge mutual respect, friendship. And as they got older, that warmth, that love, that friendship simply grew. So, um, yes, they were a terrific role model for how a marriage can work. And these early years during the war, you say 18 months, you remember the, the air raids. What are your other memories of the war? Because by the time it ended in 1945, you were five years old. That is true. I am in awe of your maths. <laughs> what can I say? I remember my grandmother putting up blackout curtains and explaining why, so that nobody would see our lights at night time. I remember my father explaining that um, the planes that went past were going to try and bomb people. And I said, oh, dear. And he said, but we have wonderful British pilots who will go up and stop them. And, of course, Canadians and Poles as well, but he didn't go into detail. British, he said. 
I remember trying on a gas mask, but I was for some reason sitting under a table with my family and we were all looking rather strange, like rubberized elephants in our gas masks. I remember the food. This was rationed food, of course. Absolutely. So we uh, we kept chickens. Mm. So I think we had a few more eggs than we, the rations would have allowed. We had rosehip syrup because you couldn't get orange juice. So instead we had rosehip syrup, which was bright pink and rather delicious, as I remember, and a very thick black malt stuff that came out of a jar, like treacle, only much thicker. I'm not sure I like that. Oh, was it called varol? I seem to remember that, something quite sticky and thick, <laughs> like a funny-tasting honey. I think it had vitamin B in it, yes. one of those. Yes, mm. I think it may have been viral. So when did you first go to school? What was the first school you were sent to? And how old were you then? Two and three quarters, because uh -huh. that was when my baby sister Priscilla was born. There was, there was a view, I think still is, that, you know, life has got to be an adventure for the older one while all attention is devoted to the newest one. But anyway, I used to sit on the doorstep, I remember, and weep. And when I went to nursery school, the teachers reported that all my paintings were black. Mm. So clearly very depressed. Uh, was, um, this, this was because of the arrival of Priscilla, that your world was turned upside down. Is this why you were weeping and painting, and painting these black pictures? What was the reason for it? I was pleased to have a sister. That was lovely and still is. But uh, I think school was just an ordeal at the beginning. I was so used to you know, the loveliness of being with my grandmother and my mum, etc. Um, but but it improved because there was a boy called Alan who used to play rather kind games with younger pupils. And I thought he was wonderful, and I still rather like that name. Mm. I mean, in a sense, was he your first boyfriend? I suppose he was, really. I think I did slightly fall in love with him. So it only goes to show, doesn't it? Because I must have been well under five. Mm, of course it does. How long did you stay at the school? Well, then when the war ended, we moved up to London, to Hampstead, and I went to school there. And that's when I encountered my first sadistic head teacher. Ah. And who was this person? Miss Webb. I have comparatively recently visited that school and opened a wonderful new playground and met the head teacher. And they were thrilled to hear my reminiscences <laughs> of this terrible villain, who it turned out had actually founded the school, Miss Webb. Mm. And she had short gray hair and a gray suit, jacket, and skirt. And it was well known. If she summoned you to her study, she would not let you go until you burst into tears. Oh so the advice all the pupils used to give each other was burst into tears early. <laughs> but I was too oh. stubborn. I wouldn't cry. So she kept me for a long time. And my mum objected to the stories I came back with. But my father said it was very good academically. And they wanted me to go to a very big girls' school, North London Collegiate School, and they wanted me to be properly prepared for it. But in the end, it got too much for him, and and I sat sat the entrance exam for North London Collegiate School. And my goodness, I met a different kind of head teacher, Dame Kitty Anderson, who was as kind and interested and brilliant at teaching as Miss Webb had been terrible. And at this time, who was your best friend? I mean, after Alan at the nursery school, when you were with Miss Webb, was there somebody at the school at least you formed a friendship with while you were there? Yes, but my best friend was then and always has been ever since, my sister Priscilla. Ah, and what, what, why is that? What has she got? Because she was, she was two years younger than you, was she? Two and three quarter, yeah. Yeah. Well, she's just absolutely lovely. Mm. I mean, think of a lovely person. Clever, funny, um, an excellent audience. Well, 
Sorry about that. That appears to be one of the things I value. I tell her jokes. Um, she tells me jokes. So the fact that she now lives in Australia is very sad for me. Oh. Very sad. And as a little girl, what sort of a personality did you have? Were you outgoing? Were you wanting to entertain the rest of the class? Were you clever? Were you pretty? What sort of a child were you? I was very round. I have photographs to prove that. Gosh. I'm, my mum said that when she used to push me in the pram, I used to wink at passers-by. <laughs> I believe that. I remember once, my first embarrassing moment was when I was sitting on an uncle's knee. I was probably about three, and I inadvertently let out an a slight noise and said to him, pardon me, I need the cloakroom and climbed off his knee and went into, to deal with it. And he said, that is a remarkable child as I got off his knee. Well, he so, was right. So beautifully mannered. That's wonderful. Very discreet. Off you went. <laughs> pardon me, I need the cloakroom. Well, what interests me is that it was slightly vulgar, was it not? And I have retained... I had to speak to my um, old college, I don't know, association or something. And one of the alumni sitting in the front row said, and to what do you attribute, Mr. Ranson, the vulgar streak in your humour? Mm. And I said, if you think I'm vulgar, you should see my mother, which she would have been <laughs> so proud about because she went to Cheltenham Ladies College and was rather ladylike. Oh, yes. At school, were you clever? Did you, did you do well? I did well in the things I did well at. Yeah. The things that interested so, you, the things you wanted to do well at. And what were they? I'm not numerate, so maths forget. We had a wonderful teacher, <laughs> Miss Hogg. <laughs> very long fingernails, very short hair. My goodness, she was sarcastic. But we put up with it because she could make us understand for a brief moment trigonometry or something like that. Yeah. So I was not good at maths, but I was, uh, well, you know, I was editor of the school magazine. I invented a school pantomime that they still do. Um, I, You know, I liked, I was a bit um, lateral, you could say. I, things that Things that were fun to do, I had fun doing writing, performing. And what do you think in you made you do those things? What made you? Obviously, clearly, you're already standing out from the crowd. What what, what drove you to that? My dad used to tell me Tucci stories, and my mum was quite naughty, quite mischievous. And maybe I inherited both of them. So maybe I have always questioned rules and conventions and traditions because my mum, who was actually very respectable, nonetheless, beneath that respectable exterior was quite naughty. And my father clearly uh, was an inventor. He invented the spoutless teapot. How does that work? It's a jug. <laughs> <laughs> he, he said it was easier than cleaning the spout. But um, anyway, so I suppose I inherited something from both of them. What is the most vivid memory of your entire childhood? The thing that is most seared in your recollections? Hmm. Well, you see, I've got such a jumble of happy memories and occasional traumas. Um, I'm just trying to think through and what would be of my whole childhood up to mm. there. Oh, I know. Yes, well, that was interesting. When I was eight, I was seriously ill and went to University College Hospital for three months. And uh, I had a kidney disease, acute nephritis, for those who are interested in such detail. And I was in the children's ward, which was actually fun. And the nurses were lovely. The doctors were lovely. 
but I caught measles from the child of the next door bed. So I was sent to what was called a fever hospital. And I was on a very special diet. I was on a meat-free diet at the time. And I wrote a letter to my mum, I was eight, saying uh, certain things worry me, like they're not letting me brush my teeth and they put me back on meat. I have, I'm not on the same diet. And my mother stormed into the hospital with my letter in her hands and demanded to see the doctor and showed him the letter. And he must have torn a strip off the nurses because the matron came and sat on my bed and said, if you ever write a letter like that again, Esther, I shall have to read every letter before you send it. And that taught me about being a hostage. And I never forgot that. And it continued to inspire me that there are people who cannot ask for help because of their situation. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think that experience, in fact, is the sort of source of what you've spent so much of your adult life doing, the kind of good works in which you've got involved from helping children all those years ago when you started Childline to now being concerned with older people with Silverline and all of that. Do you think that is the origin of it in some way? Now that you mention it, now that you've made me remember it, not that I didn't remember it, but it hadn't occurred to me that it could be inspirational. But I think sometimes the experience of an unhappy moment in your life does stay with you and tr make you try and protect other people. I mean, certainly the people who wrote to us on that slide, our consumer program, um, were motivated by wanting to protect people from going through what they have been through. And so I think it could have been. I also think it helped being Jewish because it taught me how much the minority depends on the tolerance, compassion and generosity of the majority. So that was formative too. Hello, Giles here. And I'm delighted to tell you that this episode of Rosebud is sponsored by one of the finest hotels in the world, the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel on London's Park Lane. Anyone who's stayed at the Grosvenor House Hotel will know that one of the things that sets this hotel apart is the amazing team of people who work here. The staff of the hotel are part of a rich history. In the 1930s, the head chef was a man called René Lebeg. He once served an all-green dinner in which every course and every drink matched the green of the table linen, crockery and glasses. And in the 1930s, the hotel employed a team of page boys, impeccably dressed in royal blue suits and top hats. One of these was known as Tiny Tim, the smallest page boy in the world. He was only three foot ten inches tall and had a specially made miniature motorbike made for him to commute home from Park Lane to the countryside where he lived. We're delighted that the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel are supporting this series of Rosebud. Do make sure you book with them next time you want a five-star experience in London town. Before we take a break, because quite rightly, your family say to me, look, don't overdo it, don't exhaust her, she always gives so much. Just chat to her for a while and then you can talk to her maybe another day. Before we do then take the break insisted upon by your family for your health sake, I do want to ask you about your first boyfriend, when boys came into your life, when you were a teenage girl. Did they come into your life? Did they impinge on your life? Well, I was a late developer. Ah. I remember at the age of 16, an American boy I met, I don't know how, um, told me about Elvis Presley. I'd never heard of Elvis Presley. And gave me a rather unpleasant kiss. That's really your first kiss when you were 16. Yeah. So tell me, when did you actually first fall in love? Well, we had, um, at my school, we, we had a sort of twin school in the outskirts of Paris. 
and they had a semaine culturelle. And I went for a cultural week to Paris. It was fabulous. And while I was there, there was a very, very glamorous French boy, tall, dark, and handsome. And I would I look really frumpy. I'm afraid all of us English schoolgirls look pretty frumpy. And all the all the French schoolgirls looked fantastic. <laughs> you know, they had pencil skirts and um, chic headscarves, and we had great flowery skirts and twin sets. Anyway, <laughs> so he didn't really notice me, except he did walk with me along the banks of the Seine one dark evening and bought me hot sugary donuts and a little paper cup, I think, of mulled wine. And the moon was shining and the river was dark with the silver ripples, but very dark. And it was just wonderful. And he may have given me a kiss. He may have. You don't need to remember the detail of the kiss. You just remember it's going to be a wonderful moment in the movie, You on the Banks of the Seine. I remember those donuts well. Trying to eat them without licking your lips is impossible. Who was your first steady boyfriend? Well, I, I wasn't very steady. I went to university. I went to Oxford, which my father had pointed out to me at the age of six was a good place to go. And it was. And I was... Um, respectable of course um i i had a crush on somebody but he never noticed me i went out with lots of people i don't think i ever lost my heart to any of them and didn't lose anything else either should you inquire i was paradoxically chair of the somerville ball and thereby hangs an anecdote. Well, give me that anecdote and then I will release you. Otherwise, your family are going to say you're taking advantage of knowing her for too long. Tell, Give us the anecdote of Somerville, which was your college, was it? Absolutely. Lovely Somerville. My friends decided I should chair the Somerville Ball. Anybody who has any memory of my very brief moment on Strictly Come Dancing... <laughs> or anybody who knows Anton Dubeck, my poor partner, will know that I cannot dance. But anyway, they made me chair. And I thought I needed a theme. And I was sitting in the dining hall looking at the dark wooden pillars around every doorway, etc. And I thought, this looks like a Greek temple, the Temple of the Vestal Virgins, speaking personally. <laughs> Not of everyone. And we had a very talented artist in our group of friends. And she said she'd make paper caryatids, you know, those statues mm. holding things on their heads. So I went to see the dean, Miss Harvey. Miss Harvey <laughs> conveyed the impression of being middle-aged, but she couldn't have been much older than us, in truth. Anyway, and I said to her... <laughs> Is it all right if we do the place up as a temple to the Vestal Virgins and Sarah Shepherd will draw some caryatids and we will apply them to the pillars in a way that doesn't damage them? And she thought deeply and she said it would be fine to have caryatids as long as they were clothed and not naked. So I looked at her. And I thought, Miss Harvey, you've just sold all my tickets for me. <laughs> so I rushed off to the student newspaper, Charwell, and I said, Somerville Dean bans naked caryatids. <laughs> and then I got my most glamorous friend, Norma Shepherd, who had a beautiful bust, fully clothed, of course. And we did a photo session and the picture went round the world and Norma got fan mail from sailors in Florida and the tickets sold out overnight. 
Well, there you are. So you were already a producer, even when you were at university, and with an eye to the right kind of publicity. Now, look, Esther, we've got to stop talking for today. I hope I could perhaps trouble you another morning for a, a chat because you're so lovely, and there's so much more I want to ask about your early memories. Would that be okay? Are you are you up for that? I'm very up for that. Yeah, you good. are disinterring all kinds of memories I didn't know I had. So well, it's, uh, that, that's the nice thing about about looking back. Just before we go, how do you spend your days at the moment? Obviously, I know that a conversation like ours, and I know I heard you on the radio the other day, and you told me, yes, I said you sounded so robust, you sound so well, and you said, actually, it took me two or three days to recover from that. How are you for the rest of the day? What do you do? What's the rest of your day going to be like? Um, I shall probably actually have to rest, which is mm. annoying because it's not what I used to do, but I do have to do that. And one of the That's Life team, we're, we're still in touch with each other in a sort of hilarious group on WhatsApp, um, is the chief producer, the executive producer of one of the big television quizzes. Oh. And she has suggested that I could make up some questions for them. Oh, that's so, fun. Isn't it? Oh, that will be fun. So you'll be lying there thinking, yes, an ingenious question. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, good. I've got lots more questions I want to ask you, and I want to uncover a few more of your memories. I thank you so much for being with us today. Have a restful day and speak to you again very soon. Thank you so much for listening to Rosebud. Thank you too for spreading the word about it. I'm going to spread the word now about another new podcast that I think might intrigue you. It's called The Queen's Reading Room Podcast. And it comes from The Queen's Reading Room, which is a kind of hub for people who love books and want to know more about books, set up originally by Queen Camilla. And this is a new weekly podcast really for people who love books and those who wished maybe they loved literature a little bit more. It's really to inspire you by the, the, the bookish confessions of global literary heroes. So each week, uh, an actor, an author, a personality, somebody intriguing, people even who've appeared on Rosebud will invite the listener into their own personal reading room where they'll share with us the books they simply couldn't live without. So... Who does Sir Ian Rankin read when, when he's feeling a bit low? Who picks him up? Where does David Baddiel stash his fiction? Which masterpiece has Anne Patchett given up on again and again? And each week, too, Queen Camilla herself uh, pops up and reveals some of her own all-time favourite reads. So that's the Queen's Reading Room podcast. If you like Rosebud, I think you'll enjoy that, too. Well, here we are again, Esther. It's good to be with you once more. We're on a different day. Um, I hope I find you okay. Um, and thank you for sharing first memories with me. I want you to think back, if you can, to the first memory you have of unalloyed bliss. Heavens. Mm. It's got to be unalloyed, has it? Unalloyed. It's got to be a, a moment just when you, if you can remember one, of feeling, yes, this is good. I can remember when I was six, my first banana, <laughs> which I didn't know how to eat. I didn't know that you'd peel the strips down from the top, you know, like a monkey does with a banana. So I opened it more like a parcel and ate it. And I think I think that was a joyful experience. And then someone told me I'd opened it up all wrong and became less joyful. Well, curiously, my unalloyed bliss moment is eating a peach. Uh-huh. So there we are. Maybe maybe fruits, what it's all about. And I think that describes the difference between us. You're one for the bananas, I'm one for the peaches. I'm not, I'm not going to analyse that in any Freudian no, sense. I, 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 we're going to come on to that's life in a moment. And those misshapen vegetables. On the whole, through your life, have you been a fairly even-tempered person? I mean, has it been, you know, you, you muddle along? Or you're somebody for highs and lows? Oh, Lord. Um, I think I'm equable... Serene. My children refer to me as a volcano. So who knows? Who knows, Giles? Well, let's get, you mentioned your children there, let's get to your first child. Well, in fact, we get to get to your, your marriage first. Can you remember the moment you first set eyes on Desmond? Wilcox? Yes, absolutely, I can. He came to dinner. 
and um, I didn't take to him much. Oh. And, and what was his job then, and why did he come to dinner? Do you know, I can't remember. I suppose he must have been a reporter and an editor. I suppose he was. At the BBC, and you were already working there? I was, but I was running a youth club attached to our local synagogue, and I used to invite people that I had contacts with to speak at the synagogue. So I think I must have had a, some ulterior motive in inviting him to dinner. I actually, my worst memory was a famous comedian who turned out to be a sex maniac. That wasn't good news. Oh, my gosh. Is this at the same youth club? <laughs> well, I, I had contacted <laughs> him to try and um, persuade him to come and talk to the youth club. And he said, on condition, I went to one of his shows. And I said, I'd bring my cousin. And he said, no, would I please come on my own? So not suspecting anything, I did. And ended up in his dressing room. And I had mm -hmm. to, I mean, the only way I escaped was by bursting into tears. Well, I'm sorry this happened. I mean, uh, he's no longer alive. He's no longer alive. Oh, well. He's no longer well. a threat. And we don't need to name him, but it was a clearly a grim experience. How ghastly. It was. Now, why did you suddenly bring that up? Because I was asking about your first man. You said you didn't like Desmond when you first saw him. But then you remember somebody I didn't like even more, which was this dreadful comedian. No, I was talking um, about the risks of running a youth ah, ah, I'm with you. Did you tell anybody at the time? No, you just sort of dried your tears, shrugged and moved on. Well, I remembered it. Yeah. And it struck me as... Quite interesting, because he was wearing a wig at the time. Oh, Lord. So he ran a risk. If mm. I'd seized him by the unroots of his hair, you know. Right. That you could have ended up with the wig in your hands as the evidence. I could have. Oh, dear. And sent him bald out into the world. Which oh, reminds God. me of another anecdote. Did you want to go yes. into the, these lurid moments? Is no, but since it was just a conversation, so if they come up... Um, it's a trip down memory lane, and clearly these are part of your memories. Well, I remember a quite famous and very charming uh, gentleman in show business who told me that an extremely famous and gifted lady in show business had fallen upon him. And he, knowing the person was at that moment wearing a wig, locked his fingers in it and hard to try and unlatch her it was so firmly attached that it didn't move an inch but i think he was saved in the end by others well this is the trick of going to wear a wig make sure it's <laughs> rigidly affixed yeah okay get back to inviting desmond um for, for supper yeah what happened what happened he came in and you you'd got him to come to the youth club he was very good he, he spoke yeah. beautifully and then Quite a long time afterwards, and for quite different reasons, I joined his team on Man Alive and yeah. saw how amazingly talented he was. And the two things that totally seduced me, one is talent and the other is wit. So that explains why I'm doing this podcast with you, Giles. Yes, and I don't wear a wig. That's the good news. So the first time you thought, well, there he is, and this, when you met him, properly and you worked with him and you fell for him you fell for each other we did yeah he he though was older than you and he had, he was married at the time he was and does that did that rankle with you then does it rankle with you now always always yeah. um yeah. yes i'm extremely sad that that was the situation and we tried to break up quite often it was um not good news not good news did you have? Did he have children already? Yeah. And do, did you get on with them eventually? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Two out of three came to live with us, and um, one of them is no longer with us, which is very sad. But um, I think there's a, a sort of genetic heart problem, really, which Desi had and his son had, which just meant they died much too much too young. Yeah, how, how old was Desmond when he died? 69, so he never made oh. three school years and ten, which is yes. such a shame. 
it is a sh funnily enough it is people certainly my father's generation the three score years and ten was everything that was the goal you had to hit oh. um when my father was a boy he went to a fortune teller who told him he was going to live to be 71 which seemed when you were a boy quite a long life and when oh. he got to 71 he died he thought he would had his time that was it anyway so you mentioned man alive just the, was that the first the first television work when you began appearing on screen was what? Braden, well, I I did a one-off when there was a there was one of these viewers complaints, questions, etc., answered by a panel of broadcasters or whatever, and um, the topic was whether women should ever be allowed on screen to read the news. And one of the viewers was a lady who was a, a nurse who said, never, never, because women lacked authority. And I asked her if her matron lacked authority. Oh, good question. I was put on the panel. Anyway, quite interesting. That was in the 60s. And then Bernie, Bernard Braden, came to the BBC. By that time, I was in the features department, which was Desmond's department, and John Pittman and I were, were put onto it as researchers. And the producer, whose name was John Lloyd, not the current John Lloyd, a previous John Lloyd, um, had worked with Bernie in ATV and had put the researchers in vision, and it worked really well as a format. So he decided to put John and me on the screen, and neither John nor I thought that would turn out to be permanent for either of us. John wanted to be a film reporter. He didn't particularly like studios. And I wanted to be a director. So we clutched each other's knees because that um, cheered us up. And mm -hmm. uh, we were friends, but never romantically involved. Not even our knees were romantically involved. And um, so year after year went by and the series went on. And suddenly I realized that I'd been a television presenter longer than I'd been anything else in television, researcher or director or anything. So that was weird. I wasn't the right look. I wasn't pretty enough. I, you know, I was a bit strange. I had all these teeth and, you know, so I never thought I had a role on television. When did you first become conscious of these these teeth, that look? Was that, that when? Or had you been unselfconscious before and then you became self-conscious? You don't see your own teeth, do you? No, you certainly don't. Uh, did, it, did, did, did it bother you? No. What, the physical criticism? Yes. It's astonishing. W w was, was there criticism? Oh, yeah. I remember sitting in uh, a hairdresser and opening my copy of, a, of the Sun newspaper, and I was splattered all over the page. I was attacked for everything, what I looked like, what I sounded like, what I said, and it really felt like, you know... Harakiri, having one one's guts torn out, I, it really hurt. And then I thought, well, you know, these things happen. Gosh. And that happened during Braden's Beat. And then how did that life come about? Bernie was um, invited to go back to Canada, where he came from, to launch a new network for rather more money. So he went and... Um, in his absence, the letters from viewers kept coming, and um, it seemed to me there was still a program to be done, even without Bernie. So I actually invented the title, That's Life. And, well done, uh, you. Thank you. And jolly useful mm. it was, because you could put anything into a show yeah. called That's Life, anything. Because that is life. Yes, whether it's a great campaign or funny-shaped vegetables. What what was your first big campaign? Well, we've got a lifers group of all the people that worked on That's Life. And someone who was there right at the beginning reminded me that we did um, an item about children being kept in long-stay hospitals when they should have been out in the community. But the first life and death one that I can remember us doing was the story of Ben Hardwick beautiful little toddler, little boy, who was dying of biliary atresia, which is a awful liver disease. And uh, his only hope was a liver transplant. And because we filmed him and talked to the mum, actually, a donor was found a week later. A little boy called Matthew Fuchs, who 
unfortunately, very tragically, had not survived an operation. So he became the donor and um, was um, the recipient of his liver. That's fantastic. It's wonderful, actually, to in your life, not just to made a noise, but to made a difference. I mean, that's obviously why you eventually became a day, because of that work and for creating Childline. When was that? When did that begin? What was the first? What was the first idea that you had for that? Were you lying in bed? Was it in the office? How did that idea come about? It was because um, we had done a program called Drug Watch, and I was asked if I had any other ideas. And there'd been one of those really terrible deaths of a of a child, and I said, "What about um, one about child abuse? Child Watch." So. The producer suggested that we should do it and base it on any experiences that our That's Life viewers were prepared to talk about because in Drug Watch they told us about drug habits and maybe for Child Watch they'd tell us if they'd had very unhappy or abusive or both childhoods. Um, so we launched the idea on That's Life, but we had loads and loads of children watching us because of our talented pets and so on, the fun we had. And uh, many people nowadays tell me we were the only show they were allowed to sit up and watch on Sunday nights. Anyway, I also suggested we open helplines after the show if, in case there were any children who wanted help then and there. And it, but the helpline was open for 48 hours and it was absolutely swamped with calls, more than 100 calls. So I went in the next day and met the social workers who were looking after the team that were answering the calls. And I know it was a light bulb moment. It, I, I knew at that moment that what I was hearing from them was more important than anything else I touched when in the years of That's Life and Braden Suite. And so I said to the Child Watch team, would it be possible to, um, do you think, have a helpline that was open 24-7. And um, the producer, Sarah Kaplan, who is also my first cousin, keep it in the family, um, kept nagging me about this idea. And she pulled together some of the experts we were in touch with making the Child Watch program and put the idea to them. And they said two things. One was, uh, yes, children will use a helpline, but... The second was it would be impossible to create. So nobody around the table felt like we hoped that one of them would run with the idea, but nobody did. So the meeting ended and Sarah and I decided we'd have to do it. So she went off and took advice. Um, and uh, we put together some trustees and she made me the chair. So that's what happened. And, and uh we had a, a wonderful donor, Ian Skipper, who agreed to underwrite us for the first year. We pulled together some people to work on it, and that was it. You're going to be remembered, obviously, for Childline, later for Silverline, keeping in touch with older people, but possibly at the moment anyway, and maybe for a long time to come because the film will go on, for One Life, uh, the, the film starring Anthony Hopkins. And, uh, well, you, you can... Tell me how that all began. Who had that idea? Um, when did it happen? And what do you make of the film? Well, I th I, I blame Eve Pollard because um, Betty Maxwell was already in touch with the Wintons. She was married to Robert Maxwell. Robert Maxwell employed Eve Pollard. So she heard about the scrapbook, the album that he had rediscovered in his loft, Nicky had, and wanted to return some of the documents and pictures to the children because obviously they'd been brought over uh, by Nikki and a tiny team to escape the Holocaust. Otherwise they would not have survived as children. And then they were fostered by uh, families in Britain and would not have known anything about their own backgrounds, but there in the scrapbook were photographs and names and other documents. So when Eve told me about this, obviously, I mean, I have my faults, Giles, you and I would agree, but I do know a good story when I hear one. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, yes, of course we'd do it on That's Life, because that was why she was telling me about it. 
and I rang Nicky um, and uh, congratulated him on his extraordinary achievement of saving more than 650 children who would never have survived otherwise. And he said, not enough. And I asked him why he said that, and he explained there had been another train with 250 children on it in Prague station waiting to leave when war was declared, the, the borders were closed, the um, Nazi soldiers took the children off the train, never to be seen again. And obviously, Nikki had got the families standing by and was expecting to welcome them at Liverpool Street. And that memory must have been such agony for him. I think that was one reason that he couldn't bear to think about it and didn't talk about it afterwards. Anyway, but as you know, we invited him into the studio under false pretenses, sat him in the front row, told mm -hmm. him it was to check the fact uh, we got our facts right, didn't tell him we were putting a couple of those children on either side of him, and the rest is history. It was an extraordinary moment. In the moment that it happened, when the people began to stand up, you, of course, are facing the facing it as it happens. What I mean, you were overwhelmed, I imagine, by in that moment. Well, the first time we did two programs, and the clip that is available on the internet and yeah. has been viewed more than forty million times is two programs edited together. Oh. The first program we just had, I think, three of the surviving children um, and two lovely women, Vera Gissing and Milena Grenfell Baines. She still had the card, the label that was around her neck when she arrived in Liverpool Street Station with just a little suitcase. And Vera, we told the story of Vera um, and how her parents had put her on the train. What courage those parents had. How brilliantly visionary they were to understand that sending a child away to an unknown future in an unknown country was still better than what would happen in the Holocaust. My admiration for those parents is unbounded and uh, I'm not surprised their children have done so well because they must have inherited that strength, that courage. Anyway, they told their stories and then I revealed that they were sitting next to the man who'd saved them and he had no idea. Oh. And uh, Vera Gissing thanked him for her life. And I said, can we stop recording, please? Went away, wiped the mascara from my cheeks. It's the only time I've ever had to stop recording because I was in tears. Uh, Rumour has it that somebody borrowed Nicky Winton's handkerchief to wipe my tears. I don't know if that's true. And then I got back on my chair and we carried on recording. And then because we had shown as many names as we could possibly um, show on camera, other people got in touch with us. And the second week, we didn't tell him, but he was allowed to sit next to his wife this time, which he was quite cross first time around that we didn't allow that. Anyway, he sat next to his wife this time. And uh, we didn't tell him we'd fill the audience. And then, as you say, I, I said, would you stand up, please, if you owe your life? To Nicholas Winton and as far as the eye could see the whole of the ground floor, floor of the television theatre stood and I invited him to turn around and he turned around and saw and my purpose was to try and undo that bleakness that I'd heard in those first two words he ever said to me not enough and show him how many lives he had actually been responsible for saving, he and his very small team, and uh, and his mum. She's terrific in the film, actually. Helena Bonham Carter, brilliant. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, and they realised for the first time that there was a, a sort of community of them. In fact, people say there's something like 6,000 people who wouldn't be alive today were it not for Nikki. And they called themselves Winton's children, and they stayed in touch with each other and with him. And he died at the age of 106. Extraordinary. What a life. And did you keep in touch with him? What was he like as a, as a person to know after this experience? He was um, fascinating, original, 
had his own views. Um, for example, he didn't talk about the Holocaust because he said there had been several. He talked about Holocausts. He said the biggest mistake humanity can make is not to learn the lessons of history. How true is that at the moment? Um, and he wanted his legacy to be that people would learn from the stories of history and people would understand that one person can make a difference. What do you make of Samantha Spiro's performance as you? Is that a bit strange to see yourself being portrayed by somebody else? I thought the dresses were very accurate. But I must admit, having been moved to tears by the film, which shows what was happening in Prague at the time, um, very vividly, very movingly, when Samantha walked on, I honked with laughter. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, congratulations on that. Congratulations, actually, on your whole, your uh, uh, remarkable one life. We're coming to the end now. Um, what is the lesson that you would share with younger generations? My mother used to say to me, no matter how bad it is in the evening, it'll be better in the morning. And I think I think I agree with her that you you may go to bed thinking, oh, God, it's so terrible. And then somehow you revitalize, wake up in the morning and think, oh, well. What is interesting to me is that you've always been, as far as I'm concerned, somebody who is so full of life. And yet if I read about you, and indeed the program was called That's Life, um, the film in which you feature, the Nicholas Winton story is called One Life. And yet when I read about you in the newspapers now, it's all to do with death. And that, that has become your latest campaign. Uh, do you want to say anything about that? You don't have to, because we've read so much about it. Uh, yes, well, thank you for letting me off, because I always rather think about life than death. But as you say, it is the subject which has, um, I think it's struck a nerve, perhaps, yeah. that the, the time is is uh, is right for us to be discussing legalising assisted death. My sister, who lives in Australia, can't believe that we still haven't legalized it. Oh, do they have it in Australia? Do they have it in Australia? They have it in Australia. They have it in Canada. They have it in the Netherlands. We there are plenty of examples for us to pick and mix from. We can, you know, decide which of the the various kinds of uh, legislation we we think is suitable for us. But I definitely think it's time to talk about it. I've just discovered that my MP is implacably opposed to it. So. That's interesting. Well, there's a general election coming up. You can sort that out. Uh, you are an, you're an amazing campaign, and you are so full of life, uh, and you, nobody knows what the future holds. Uh, I hope for you it holds many years still to come. Who knows? Um, and we can have more conversations as the years go by. Esther, thank you so much for giving us your time and your energy, because, um, well... Time always is limited. Energy, you would think, is limited, but you seem to have limitless energy. Um, I need to thank you because you have this mystic way of investing women of your acquaintance with Daemoness. Oh, well. They've only to sit next to you on the sofa to become dames, it you seems. I, I don't think I've ever done that. No, have you I? haven't. But maybe when um, Gogglebox comes around again, the celebrity version of the summer, I shall come down and sit on your sofa. But you are quite right. Um, Joanna Lumley, Maureen Lipman, uh, Sheila Hancock, they came on my sofa the next thing. I, my wife says it's because the Queen was watching Celebrity Gogglebox and thought these poor women having to sit on his sofa watching these unspeakable programs like Naked Attraction. We've got to reward them in some way. And then got in charge and said, Miss Lipman, it's time you were made a dame. But you became a dame, to be honest, because of your achievements, both as a broadcaster, particularly with Childline, and then with Silverline. And you just are campaigning to the end. But my gut feeling is the end is, is a way off. So, Esther, I look forward to speaking again and often. You're just the best. Thank you, thank you. Fascinating insight there into an incredible life. I was particularly interested by Esther's story about her time in the hospital as a child and how that may have inspired her. 
I think she's inspiring herself. So my thanks there to Esther. Before I go, it's time for some more of your emails. We've heard from Liz Seddon in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. She writes, My earliest memory is being about four years of age and going with my ma'am to one of her part-time jobs. It was wintertime, and the pavement was very slippery. My ma'am was a terrible skit. She always laughed when you had a mishap, and she laughed outrageously. I went flying and landed on my bum, and she laughed and laughed so much she couldn't help me get up. I'm now 67, and that memory has stayed with me all these years. I bet it has. <laughs> thank you very much, Liz. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who's been in touch. Remember, you can email us anytime you like at hello at rosebudpodcast.com. Hello at rosebudpodcast.com. And Harriet, my producer, will try to get back to you with a friendly reply. I certainly hope it isn't an unfriendly one. We particularly love hearing about your earliest memories, so don't be shy, write in. Cheerio, it's been a pleasure. Let's meet again, same time, same place, next week on Rosebud, where interesting people share their first memories and much more besides. Rosebud is produced by Harriet Jane, artwork by Freya Betts, and music by Phil Leppard. <laughs>